Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Free, free Julian Assange after almost five years in a London dungeon for telling the truth to the world about what our leaders are doing in our name with our money under our flags. It's the witching hour in the High Court in London on the Strand. Thousands will gather outside the court to bear witness to whether British justice is a thing of the past. And a shiver ran along the Labour front bench looking for a spine to run up. Has Keir Starmer found a spine today at the Labour conference as I breathed down the Labour neck in the Rochdale by-election, he finally called for a ceasefire and an end to the fighting right now. It's a pity that 100,000 people had to leave their blood, many of them their guts, on the ground of the Gaza Strip, under the rubble, in the cold earth, to change his mind. It's going to be, I promise you, the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And it's live from Rochdale. Before I go any further, I have issued legal proceedings through my solicitor KRW Law in Belfast against Sky News and Rachel Johnson, the sister of the erstwhile Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, for egregious and grotesque libel uttered live on national television and not contested, let alone contradicted, by the person conducting the interview, one Trevor Phillips. I will not be saying anything more about this case until it comes to court. And anyone who's calling the show this evening should make no further reference to the case. I hope I've made that clear. Should that happen, we will have to cut you off immediately. A libel on live television in the middle of a crucial by-election campaign, it doesn't get much more serious than that. A much more serious case, however, does unfold in the High Court in London in the Strand this week, 20 and 21st of February. Julian Assange is a friend of mine. I thank the Lord that I am able to say that. Julian Assange is one of the great heroes of the 21st century. Julian Assange is the world's most important publisher, most important journalist, most important teller of the truth which is why he spent nearly five years in a London dungeon, Belmarsh Jail, built for mass murderers, child rapists, and terrorists. This gentle man has been held in solitary confinement, subjected to gruesome and unrelenting prison oppression. Oscar Wilde had nothing on the trials of Julian Assange. He spent almost a decade inside the Ecuador embassy for fear that he would be extradited by Sir Keir Starmer, no less, to Sweden to face fake invented charges of rape and sexual assault. He had to do that because he knew, I knew, and remarkably, some people who should have known did not know that the purpose of these allegations the purpose of extradition to Sweden was the quicker to extradite him into the maw of the U.S. injustice system. I visited him many times in the Ecuador embassy. I sang Frank Sinatra to him from outside the window of the Ecuador embassy 
just beside Harrods in London. I did not know that entirely illegally, the CIA was spying on me and on all of Julian's other visitors. Even in the embassy toilet, we were being filmed and spied upon. And more importantly than his visitors, his legal team discussing his legal case and cases and the charges against him from the United States of America were also being illegally spied upon. They were being illegally filmed. It is almost unbelievable that any case could have been allowed to even proceed, let alone with the prisoners behind bars in Belmar's jail, when it is now an admitted and accepted fact that the prosecution, the United States government, was illegally spying on the lawyers of the accused man and was then privy to every single aspect of his defense. In any jurisdiction in the whole world, that would be the end of the case, but not under British justice today. This case has not just been allowed to proceed. It has not just been allowed to proceed with the accused person unconvicted of any crime to be left languishing in that dungeon. But there's a very real danger that within a few days, the great journalist, the great publisher, the great tooth teller, Julian Assange, will be on a plane to the United States of America, to a hanging judge and jury in Virginia, home of the CIA, and thence to 145 years in a supermax penitentiary from which we will never see his face or hear his voice again. It doesn't get any more serious than that. The reality is that these hypocrites in America, in Great Britain, were forever telling us how journalism is not a crime, but only if it's a journalist in trouble in a country that they don't like. I always ask them, did you ever hear of a man called Julian Assange? And they never reply. Every time they talk about a journalist from the Wall Street Journal in jail in Russia, I ask them if they've ever heard of a man called Julian Assange, but they never answer. Julian Assange is the world's number one political prisoner because what he told us about were grievous political crimes committed by our government in our name, on our dime, under our flag. He told us what the criminals were doing. And when the criminals get to imprison the people who reveal their crimes, then we truly are living in dystopian and criminal times. That's the long and the short of it. If Julian Assange is extradited this week, they'll have him on a plane before his feet can touch the ground back in Belmar's jail. We'll never see him again. His little children will never see their father again except through a glass screen in a supermax penitentiary thousands of miles away. His wife will never kiss his face again ever except through a glass darkly. It is one of the greatest crimes of this century so far. Certainly the greatest crime against journalism, against broadcasting, against freedom of speech and expression, against the right of the citizen to know what is being done in his name at his cost. It will be a travesty of justice. I have many times said and I mean it, that whilst all of the institutions in this once proud Great Britain have been corrupted and hollowed out, in my experience, the judiciary is the least corrupted, is the least hollowed out. And so I have, throughout these proceedings, entertained the hope that the judges would find for justice, that the judges would rescue us from the shame that our government has placed us in, in this regard, as in so many others. I have gradually begun to lose hope 
as judgment after judgment went against my friend Julian Assange. But there is one last hope, and that one last hope is that the British judges this week decide to call a halt to this grotesquely expensive charade, this shame, this smear on our reputation, already so badly tarnished by so many other things, that the judges speak for Britain, speak for the free people of the world, and free Julian Assange this week, so that we can all kiss him at least one more time. How badly we miss him today. If he were here, if WikiLeaks under Julian Assange were here, we would know far more about the crimes being committed in the world by our governments. And amongst those, perhaps the greatest of those, certainly for 20 years, the greatest of those, is the fact that we are up to our neck in the slaughter in the Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip. Keir Starmer not only whipped his members of parliament to vote against a ceasefire, he not only stated and repeatedly and his factotums on his front bench echoed his words later that day and the next day that Israel had the right to cut off water and electricity from 2.3 million captives in the world's biggest open-air prison camp, to use the words of Britain's Foreign Secretary David Cameron, uttered in Turkey more than a decade ago when he was Prime Minister. When Keir Starmer must have known, unless he's not really a human rights lawyer, unless he's not really a king's counsel, must have known that Israel had no such right, that in fact such collective punishment is a breach of multiple international law, the laws of war, the Nuremberg Tribunals, the Geneva Conventions, international human rights law, all outlaw collective punishment of 2.3 million people by plunging them into the morass of war, famine, pestilence, and disease, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But say it, he did, and he meant it, because when he told us that he supports Israel, quote, without qualification, unquote, he meant it. He didn't always mean it. I was present in a room in London only nine years ago when he was on the platform calling for Israel to be kicked out of international football for racism. But nine years later, he was certain that without qualification, he supported Israel. And everything that has flowed in British politics ever since has been predicated upon that without qualification support. He has used it ruthlessly to extirpate both his predecessor as Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and many of his most important allies and hundreds, if not thousands, of Labour Party members who've been suspended and expelled for breaches of Keir Starmer's without qualification support for Israel. And a grossly disproportionate number of those members of the Labour Party who've been expelled and suspended have been Jewish members of the Labour Party. Jews don't have to be on the side of apartheid. As I've often explained during my time underground for the African National Congress led by Nelson Mandela in apartheid South Africa, all of the people who helped me as I moved around underground were South African Jews, some of the great heroes of the anti-apartheid struggle, both inside South Africa and outside, were Jewish people who couldn't stomach apartheid. So everything that's happened inside the Labour Party 
is based on that statement of unequivocal, without qualification, fealty, loyalty of the leader of the opposition to the apartheid state of Israel. And it's coming back to haunt them. It's coming back to haunt them here in Rochdale. It's going to haunt them in Manchester Thameside. It's going to haunt them in the Berry constituency. It's going to haunt them in Oldham, in Bolton, and in Birmingham, and in East London, and in scores of constituencies all over this country. He may think that all these people are fools. He may think that by going to the rostrum at the Labour Party conference in Scotland today and finally saying there must be an immediate ceasefire, having kicked people off his front bench a few weeks ago for voting for an immediate ceasefire, he may think that these people are fools. But it's too little, Sir Keir, and it's way, way too late. And that's not a matter of chronology when I say it's too late. It's because 100,000 people are either dead or maimed or missing under the rubble in Gaza before you decided, finally, to call for a ceasefire and the end to the fighting in Gaza. It's actually three weeks since the International Court of Justice declared that plausibly Israel was committing acts of genocide and sent them for trial on that charge and issued peremptory instructions to the Israeli government, all of which they have defied Three weeks, Sir Keir Starmer, KC, has still not responded to the decision of the International Court of Justice. 100,000 people's blood is on the ground in Gaza before you decided to call for a ceasefire. And if you think, Sir Keir, that that is going to cut the mustard, amongst the millions of people in this country who are deeply, vitally concerned with what's happening in Gaza. I met an old Englishman outside this studio here in Rochdale just before the show. He traveled quite some distance to shake hands with me and thank me for the 50 years of work that I have put in on this Palestine question, proving the personification of the lie that only Muslims care about what's happening in Gaza. Every Muslim cares, as you're going to find out, Mr. Starmer. But millions of others also care about children hanging on a hook with no legs and their life's blood drip, drip, dripping onto the concrete below. Millions of people care about little Hind who was trapped in a car with her entire dead family on the phone, saying her prayers, begging for rescue. And then Israel murdered her and the ambulance men that came to save her. If you think, Keir Starmer, that anyone's going to forget your role in this. If you think, Keir Starmer, that anyone's going to forgive your role in this, then you're not clever enough to be a king's counsel. And you've been masquerading as a human rights lawyer all of this time. Julian Assange is the big story this week. But the slaughter, the genocide in Gaza, in Gaza City, in Khan Yunus, in Rafa, from Rochdale to Rafa, we reached out last night at an amazing event starring the great British rap artist, poet, philosopher, king, Loki. We reached out from Rochdale to Rafa 
We make no apology for it. We're proud of it. And I just want to close on this conundrum. Every single journalist and broadcaster who has covered the Rochdale by-election begins with a ritual denunciation of my having put the genocide in Gaza in the center of my election campaign. I started to ask the question, if this by-election had been taking place in 1940, in 1941, would these journalists and broadcasters be ritually attacking me for putting the Holocaust at the center of my election campaign? But by the time I reached the end of that question, believe it or not, maybe by divine countenance, I realized that the answer to that is actually yes, they would have. They did. These same newspapers denouncing me now were on the march with Britain's black shirt. Hurrah for the black shirts, screamed the headlines of Britain's Daily Mail back in the day. Those same newspapers, those same journalists didn't want to look at the Jews fleeing the Holocaust, being conducted by the beasts of fascism. They closed their doors, they turned their backs, they looked the other way. Isn't that funny? How some things never change. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. It's the mother of all talk shows. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, Dr. Yasser Khan is, in fact, a Canadian surgeon. He's a humanitarian and he's the founder and the CEO of the non-government organization, GIVE. And even more importantly than all of that, he bears firsthand testimony and witness to the agony of the people in Gaza. Dr. Khan, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, perhaps you'll explain uh, how, why uh, you ended up in Gaza and what you found there. Well, thanks for having me, George. Uh, great to be on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, I was I was one of the first uh, missions from, from the Canada and US to, to actually go down. This was in, in December. And uh, it was um, a random uh, ask by a colleague of mine if I want to go. And I didn't think people were going at that point in time. And so I said, yes, immediately. I've been a lifetime humanitarian. I've been to over 40 different countries, done, uh, worked in a lot of, uh, you know, uh, conflict and non and post-conflict zones in uh, Asia, Africa and um, South America. And basically, I said yes right away. We've all been seeing this live stream mass killing um, plausible genocide, whatever you want to call it, genocide of a, of a civilian population for three months at that point in time. And we're all suffering. I wanted to go and help. And that's what took me to to uh, Gaza. And where did you go? How did you get in, first of all? And where did you go? And what did you find there? 
So, so basically, I went through Cairo um, because that's the only way you can go. And I traversed the Sinai Desert and went through what's called the Rafah border, which is controlled by Egypt. And in order to get into Gaza, you have to be approved by all the authorities, the Egyptian authorities, the uh, uh, Israeli authorities, uh, Ministry of Health and the WHO. And I got in and um, we landed at about uh, or we got through the border at about 6.30 p.m., went through this harrowing night journey where I was the only car on the road worried about Israel missile strikes. And we got to the European hospital, uh, which is uh, now the only functioning hospital in the Gaza Strip. At that point in time, there was Nasser Hospital, which is gone now, uh, and the European hospital. And I mean, it was horrific what I saw. Um, It was the most, in, 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 in seeing so much in my life, it was the most horrific thing that I've ever seen in my entire life. And I don't want to ever see that again. I don't think anybody should see that. Um, First of all, the whole hospital was turned into a refugee camp. There was 20,000 at that time. So everything I tell you, George, is now 10 times worse, right? Everything. I was about there about three, four, four weeks ago. So it's much worse. At that point in time, there's 20,000 people homeless living in these makeshift shelters of bed sheets and and blankets covering them up. There was no tents because they thought relatively... Uh, you know, the hospital is the safest place to be. But as we've seen in this war on Gaza and the Palestinians, that nothing is safe. No international war crime is safe. Uh, There's no red line for the Israeli forces. We've seen that clearly. And so, fair enough. As as soon as I got out, uh, there was a 24-hour noise of drones humming. Uh, There are Israeli spy uh, spy drones, but there's also quadcopter drones, which are the drones that are weaponized with, with missile or sniper fire. And there was constant, constant humming. And right away, I noticed the bombs going. We're, at that point in time, uh, they were about a kilometer away from the hospital. Now, of course, they're right there. And you could hear the bombs and your whole body would shake. And the ER docs told me, uh, they said, listen, Dr. Khan, you know what? Um, uh, give it 10, 15 minutes, the mass casualties will start coming in. And boy, indeed, they did come in, George. And it was the most horrific scene that I've ever, ever seen in my entire life. It was annihilation. It was mass chaos. I don't know if anybody can properly picture. It was mass chaos. There's people uh, coming in with with, with rubble, uh, you know, women, uh, mothers holding their, their children. There's one mother was holding her eight, nine-year-old boy, who's, who, by the way, is skinny, like there's bones, because as you know, they've been starved. I mean, they're starving now and they've been starved intentionally um, by the Israeli forces, by the Israeli government. And uh, they're starving and they're all thin. And she's holding his cold, dead body, screaming to us uh, to check her pulse, his check his pulse, check his pulse. And and the boy is cold and dead. And that's just one example. I mean, there's there's more than I'd say about 60 percent of the people that I saw were all children and all young children under 13 or 14. I mean, not that I mean, even a 17 year old is young, but under 13 or 14, you know, covered with rubble, dust, head fractures. Um, I mean, I, I hate to be graphic, but this is this is how it is and, and why we should know. Limbs dangling off, barely connected, uh, soft tissue wounds right to the bone and, um, you know, eyeballs. Now, I, I do plastic eye surgery, eyeballs shattered with eyeshadow, shrapnel kind of extruding. And you saw all this in front of me. It was mass chaos. There is no space because it's already 300 percent over capacity. There's no gauze. Uh, staff are overworked. There's there's children and women all over the floor. Uh, basically, um, there's uh, they had to suture whatever they could on the ground on the floor uh, without anesthetic because the anesthetic local anesthetics are short supply. Trying to triage who goes up, who doesn't go up. Uh, you know, uh, head head trauma in in two year olds with sort of a a bump filled with blood there. And just lying on the floor, forgotten in the mass chaos. And it was just, just, just horrific. It was, I always call it, it was like hell on earth, in my opinion. Well, that was uh, stunningly described. And especially with your caveat that everything you saw is now 10 times worse. You can certainly multiply the numbers and multiply the numbers of casualties. Uh, how badly off? was the hospital then in terms of the facilities that it had, given that people are fleeing to hospital even when they're not injured because naively they imagine that 
a hospital will not be bombed. But of course, as you put it, uh, the European hospital is the last remaining functioning uh, hospital. How badly off are they for medicines, bandages, all the necessary paraphernalia for healthcare? George, it was very bad when I was there. Um, you know, gauze and uh, antibiotics were minimally there, uh, almost out. Um, even anesthetics, they had enough to give general anesthesia uh, for, for now when I was there, but basically not enough for local anesthetic. On my last day when I was leaving, they ran out of morphine. Now, you know, morphine is needed for a lot of major orthopedic procedures and injuries. You, you need morphine because it's, it's a potent painkiller. They had none of that. I saw, George, people lying all over the floor in the hospital because there's no beds with these orthopedic devices taken from their legs. They're in unstable situations. There's one bathroom for 200 people. They're living in closed uh, corners and their legs are getting infected. So basically, if the initial uh, uh, explosion or sniper fire did not get an amputation, basically the infection would do it and they'd have to go back to the OR to save their life would get uh, an amputation. And if they had the proper equipment, uh, proper surgical equipment, surgical instruments, proper supplies, and even anesthetics and antibiotics, you could save a lot of these limbs, right? In one day, I saw 15 legs being amputated. Almost all of them were under 16 years of age. So two, uh, 14. I myself took about 10 shattered eyeballs out because of shrapnel. Um, And the oldest child I did was 16 years old. I did as young as two to six to 11 to 12 to uh, to 15 and or thereabouts, all young, uh, all with their lives ruined. And I think the thing that we should uh, under, understand from a healthcare point of view, it's been a completely intentional destruction of the healthcare system. And it's been done with a with a with a with a plan, right? And and what I and and you know, based on my discussions and my experience with speaking to physicians on the ground, the healthcare officials, the WHO, you know, I, I was able to end what I saw myself, get a picture where basically they've uh, destroyed most hospitals. Doctors have tried to repopulate the hospitals, and they've been driven out by sniper fire or killed. They've, uh, you know, the 2,000 pound weapons of mass destruction that the Israeli forces have dropped don't get the tunnels, but they'll get all infrastructures, so sewage pipes, water pipes. You get sewage water mixing with wa- with drinking water. You know, bacterial diseases are rampant. Cholera, typhoid, not far away. Hepatitis A is endemic. Gastrointestinal diseases. And then don't forget, there's 15,000 bodies decomposing under the rubble. Now it's raining there. That rainwater leaches bacteria, mixes with the water supply. You get further epidemics. And the bizarre thing, and you know this, George, the bizarre thing is their politicians have said this openly. They've not hidden any of their plans. They've said that they want epidemics. They've said they've said to wipe everything out, which is really bizarre because it's not like I'm making this up. I mean, they've said this. And um, they've, you know, over three to 400 healthcare workers have been killed, doctors, nurses, paramedics, ambulances. And so, uh, you know, doctors have been kidnapped, right? Um, And furthermore, antibiotics have been limited. So a disease is rampant. They're starving. So they're malnourished, which means that they're more susceptible to infections and disease. And uh, basically, um, it's been so where everything's flattened so that once this is all over, there'll be nothing to return back to. So they'll have to leave to seek health care. And that's been the plan from what I believe and from what I've talked to people on the ground, because they've destroyed everything and it makes no sense. It takes years to build a full functioning modern hospital, but seconds to destroy it, right? And so it's, it's, it's and I mean, the, the amount of amputations, George, there's well over 5,000, I'd say. I mean, UNICEF six weeks ago said 1,000 approximately or more. There's at least 5,000 children double amputees, two legs, two arms, one arm, one leg, who've been amputated. And, you know, the specialists say it takes, by the time a child is an adult, it takes eight or nine or 12 surgeries to refine the stump, you know, as they grow older. And especially, you know, how is that going to happen? Because most of these kids have lost their parents, their support system, their grandfathers, grandmothers, uncles, aunts, um, everybody's gone. So who's going to take care of these kids? So again, the thinking is that, you know what? If the bombs don't get you, disease will get you. And so it's an awful, awful, horrific scenario, George. Really, really horrific. And getting worse. 
Well, I'm almost speechless, Doctor. I'm almost uh, speechless at the testimony that you're giving us. Your government and my government, and above all, the United States government, but all the Western governments, uh, to an enormous extent, whether it's greater or lesser, it's still enormous, deny all of this. Uh, For they could not accept it, they could not acknowledge it, because how could they then justify the political stance that they are taking? How is the testimony that you have brought back playing in Canada, once one of the kinder, gentler countries on the earth, no more, but once upon a time? How is it going down in Canada? Well, unfortunately, the stance of our uh, Prime Minister Trudeau currently has been extremely disappointing to all of the to all of the all of us who who uh, are on the side of humanity. Having said that, you know, um, I was one of the first groups to go in, and when I came back uh, at that point in time, a lot a lot of the mainstream uh, media in Canada wanted to speak to me, so I did speak on mainstream media uh, at the time. But now, George, if you look back, uh, you know, all these. Physicians are coming back in the UK, in the US, in Canada. And many, most of these people I don't know. We all have the same things to say. I mean, I was reading columns written now by physicians who just come back. It's the exact same thing I'm saying. We all have the same story because we're all witnessing, and this is hundreds of doctors now, the same thing, the same cruelty, the same mass killing. I mean, the, the Israeli killing machine has been vicious. I mean, George, when I was there, uh, I was talking to my colleagues and doctors, and they said that they've seen injuries that they've never seen before, ever. They've seen missiles explode, which with filled with shrapnel intended to do permanent harm so that, you know, any of these kids, if they survive, they'll survive handicapped, right? Um, I've seen them use drones that cause um, weird amputations. Most amputations occur at the elbow, or at, at the knee, these are above thigh, above arm amputations. And so the thinking is that, you know, Israel with its defense industry, if a weapon is, 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 what, is what they discuss with me, if, if a weapon is battle tested, it's gonna have a higher value, isn't it, right? So, um, so it, all, it all adds up to this diabolic plan that they're doing. And again, the bizarre thing, George, is they haven't hidden it. Like the ICJ said these statements in their in their in their final hearing. I mean, these are things that are not hidden. For me, the humanitarian and medical trauma is huge. It's huge, and just it's it's frustrating. Yeah, uh, and you know, right now, I think I think the mainstream media is somewhat coming on now after five months of carnage and and slaughter. They're coming on now, um, but. You know, we've been seeing the same thing all over again. We all have, we've all witnessed the same thing. All of us physicians who've come back. Battle tested on babies. Doctor, you're doing God's work. Uh, May God bless you and reward you uh, in the ever after. Uh, You've moved me so powerfully. I barely know what to say in response to what you've told us. Beyond, thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. This evening, Dr. Yasser Khan, Canadian surgeon, professor, and founder of Give. Let me take a quick break while I recover my composure, and I'll be right back. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. How about that podcast then? Number one in Pakistan and the United Arab Emirates and in the charts just about everywhere in the world. Do scan that uh, QR codes. It's all over my head. I just do the talking. Clever younger people do the science. One of our most popular guests from the United States is the one and only Garland Nixon, talk show host and political analyst. Who joins us again now? Uh, Garland, welcome back. Uh, uh, I'd have you on every week if I could. You are uh, such a popular guest and such a wise one. Uh, So I want to ask right up front about Julian Assange. He might be on the plane uh, to you uh, this week, this very week. He might be 
from the court to the airport and out of here. What's going to happen if and when he arrives in the United States? Well, I still kind of feel as though the um, the plan may be to allow him to go before some type of a European court or to continue to stretch this thing out. Because um, as you bring up, it's going to be there are going to be major problems if they bring Julian Assange here. It's going to put the um, the mainstream media here in a difficult position, wherein it will be made obvious that they are um, acting theoretically acting against their own um, best interest. Um, they many of the um, the mainstream media outlets that have remained quiet during the persecution of Julian Assange could, in fact, be charged with the same crimes that he's charged with and that they shared the same information that he shared. So um, as if the Biden administration didn't have enough problems, if they bring Julian Assange here to the United States, they'll probably face some very significant questions. And, and, and I would likely think there will be some um, some protests. Yeah, I mean, that was the point I was going to make to you next, that, I mean, Joe Biden needs this like a hole in the head, right? I mean, the liberals that are his last remaining uh, constituency of support, including the uh, liberal newspapers, the Post, the Times, and so on, they cannot possibly support the prosecution of Julian Assange under the Espionage Act because they actually published his material. Uh, and so one would have thought that Biden would have dropped this case by now. Why hasn't he? Uh, well, th this is not a Joe Biden case. This is, in fact, the, um, you know, the deep state or some people just call it the state. This is the eternal state, the people who are always in power. They're upset about it and they would be perfectly happy if, you know, they're fine if Joe Biden, you know, suffers, if either of the parties suffer because they're still going to be in power. I think one of the things we're looking at here is that it would be interesting in this particular time period because the Ukraine project, which is a neocon project, is in collapse with what's happening in Avdiivka. I always struggle with that that term. Um, the uh, Ukraine, uh, the, excuse me, the Human Rights Project, which is to go around the world and to claim, you know, that we have the moral high ground all of the time. That's falling apart with the um, Alexei Navalny um, death because, as the U.S. screams, "Oh my gosh, poor Navalny!" Of course, people obviously say you're literally involved in a genocide. How can you possibly argue that someone else? Um, is involved in some kind of, you know, a crime of moral turpitude based on what you're doing. And last but not least, um, certainly the uh, the issue of Julian Assange brings up the 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 uh, the issue of democracy and of freedom of speech, freedom of the press that the U.S. again tries to use against their enemies. So it would be one more of their um, fake tropes collapsing in their face. I was going to ask you about both Ukraine and Gaza. Let's start with Ukraine. Uh, the uh, the logjam over funding appears to be continuing. And uh, according to one of our guests, Simon in Florida, and now imperils the current speaker of the House as it imperiled the last one. What's happening on the Ukraine front in the United States? Well, I think it would have been dif uh, difficult enough to get um, funding through um, prior to the, everything that's happened in the last several weeks. But I think that uh, two things. Number one, the fact that it is now clear and obvious that there is no um, universe in which uh, Ukraine is going to defeat um, the Russian army makes it uh, obvious that any money that's sunk into Ukraine now is, of course, throwing throwing bad money. I would say bad money for good. Let's just saying worse money for bad in this particular instance. Additionally, um, Donald Trump, I think, realizes that this thing's going to collapse and the Republicans realize that this thing's going to collapse. And I think they realize they'd much prefer it collapse now than after the election. And so it's going to be, I think, nearly impossible to get any money through for the Ukraine project in that it, it, it is in the process of collapsing right now. So I think that uh, that that game is over. They're going to they're probably going to try to figure out how they can, um, you know, survive the the uh, immediate demise of the Nazi regime in Kiev. Well, uh, of course, uh, Donald Trump said he'd sort it out uh, before he was even inaugurated. But uh, the war might be over before 
your presidential election is even held. How much of an election issue is this turning out to be in the primaries and as we run towards November? Well, I think that it has the, the, the fallout from the Ukraine debacle has not even begun to, um, you know, to, to hit American politics because there's still some, you know, because Ukraine has not completely collapsed. The American people, a large number of the American people have not realized the gravity of the situation there. But as we see it completely collapse, they'll be in a position where the only option will be to, um, begin some level of negotiations with the Russians and to negotiate with the Russians acknowledges that the Russian that the Russians are good faith actors that they can be talked to so the more evidence that comes out that the Russians a were willing to talk from the um the Tucker Carlson uh, interview and that now we're in a position where we can talk to the Russians, where we have to talk to the Russians, the whole trope that they were just crazy people who wanted to attack Ukraine and then move on to the English Channel is going to go out the window. And it just um, opens the door for more questions. I think the Biden administration is in deep and serious hurt. And I don't know if you saw the latest um, iteration of the Biden brain freeze, but it was so horrific as to um, create a dynamic where now Kamala Harris is out talking. And now they're saying Kamala Harris, you know, there's all of this press that Kamala Harris is now working to save, save the campaign and to take them in a different direction. If Kamala Harris is your salvation, it's time to search for a white flag. <laughs> What's been the fallout of uh, Tucker Carlson's uh, global record-breaking interview? I don't know the latest figure. The last one I saw was over 200 million viewers the most viewed political interview of all time by by a, a country mile, by a thousand country miles. What's the fallout in the U.S. over it? I, I think the biggest fallout is probably in Congress, you know, because there are a lot of people out here who um, who watch alternative media and they under they already understood the, what was going on there. However, I think now the pressure from that element of the Republican Party that was opposing for this you you, you uh, this this neocon project in Ukraine, that element is growing due to this and they've got more information i think the people who are opposing continuing with the neocon project now have much more ammunition to argue against it that now that has created a group of republicans in the house that are large enough and strong enough that they can block it that now i don't see how anything gets but, but that just finished it off now they have the um um, the horsepower that they need in Congress to ensure that no, no more money gets thrown away in the Ukraine trash compactor. Now, uh, Joe Biden has just announced that he's going to veto uh, the latest, fourth, I think it is, uh, attempt to uh, order a ceasefire uh, from the Security Council in New York. This is the Algerian motion that we talked about on the show earlier. Uh, why did he do that? I mean, why not just abstain? He's always telling us, after all, that he's increasingly unhappy about the unhinged behavior of your country's Israeli ally. Well, it's fairly obvious now that Joe Joe Biden um, will go along with Bibi Netanyahu, whatever he wants, no matter how disastrous the policies. You know, the history of Joe Biden, if you look at what he has said regarding Israel and Zionism, it is very clear that Joe Biden has always intended on supporting the most extreme uh, elements in the Israeli government. And that while he may, you know, occasionally they'll leak something that Joe Biden uh, was arguing with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, or he called him some kind of a name. Those little leaks come out for what it, for what they're worth. But the reality is, um, Joe Biden has made it clear that he's going to support Bibi Netanyahu to the end. I do think that the plan that the um, that the uh, the Zionist uh, leadership in Israel has to attack. Um, Hezbollah will be uh, in in in, uh, in southern Lebanon will be their demise because Lebanon is far too powerful for them to to go toe to toe with it with um, and not really get clobbered. And at that point, what does the United States do? Do they get involved when the American people do not want another war? So Joe Biden's backed himself and Bibi Netanyahu into a corner. And I can't predict how it will come out, but I do predict that Joe Biden will continue to 
um, support Bibi Netanyahu and his suicidal, um, you know, move to really to, to destroy Israel on his own. And finally, Garland, please uh, bring us up to date on the the farcical primaries. Uh, Trump's already won. He had already won before he began. Uh, is he formally the winner yet? And uh, Joe Biden, having uh, forced everyone else out of the race, uh, has he managed to win against no opponents at all? And where stands Kennedy now in the polling? It, well, right now it is uh, Joe. It is uh, Joe Biden and Trump. That's pretty much it. It's a foregone conclusion. The Democrats, as you probably know, a number of states they wouldn't even allow another name on the ballot uh, other than Joe Biden. So they've made their decision to go with Biden. But again, we can see that Joe Biden is, does not have the mental capacity to continue. I mean, I don't even know if this guy's still going to be alive next no November. And if he is, if he'll know he's alive. Um, so he, I think I really, to be quite frank, the discussion about the Democratic Party is not so much about Joe Biden, Biden being the nominee, but how are they going to manage? What machinations will they use to insert someone else other than Joe Biden? Um, Nikki Haley's an interesting, interesting because she's basically saying all the things that the Democrats would say. She's making the arguments that the the neocon Democrats would make um, against Donald Trump. She's attacking him now for not being tough about the, the death of Alexei Navalny. And I think she's mainly sticking around, hoping that they'll be able to use lawfare to get rid of Donald Trump. And when Trump goes because of whatever the latest case against the, him uh, takes him out, that she'll be there to, uh, you know, as they say, you, uh, you shake the tree and I'll rake the leaves. She's there to rake the leaves in the primaries. Um, but right now, uh, the case, the main case that they wanted to use against Donald Trump in Georgia seems to be unfolding. Um, the other case that they wanted to hurt him with in um, New York, where he ended up with interest about a $450 million um, uh, judgment against him, that still has to go to the Supreme Court. And I, I personally think that the Supreme Court will significantly reduce that, but we shall see. So yeah, right now, the yeah, to be on the ground in the United States, Pretty much universally, everybody says, yeah, it looks like Trump's going to win it. I mean, you just talk to everybody and everybody says, yeah, Trump's going to win it. The only those who hope otherwise, you know, they have their fingers and toes crossed. But in reality, barring some uh, unthinkable black swan event, um, there's the, 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 Donald Trump has this thing done. Any word on his running mate? No, you know, the discussion now, there are people, there are some people saying, well, maybe Nikki, De Nikki Haley, well, here's what I'd say. If Donald Trump chose Nikki Haley, he wouldn't live an hour. If the, if, if the neocons knew that all they had to do was take Donald Trump out and, and Nikki Haley would become uh, uh, immediately present, he wouldn't live long enough to, to, to do the oath of office. Um, but, I, you know, there, there's a lot of names floating around there. I personally believe myself due to the fact that there's so many military engagements. My prediction is that Donald Trump will choose somebody with a military background. I don't know that it'll be McGregor or whoever, but I'm, I'm suspecting he will choose someone with a military background that will cement his argument that he can address the, um, you know, all of these international conflicts going on and that he will have someone who understands them enough that he can, you know, navigate them to a close. So that's my that's my prediction. That's a smart, smart piece of speculation. I hope it's Colonel McGregor, if it's not Scott Ritter. Garland Nixon, yeah, thank you tough. very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, James Gerard Brown says the only good Clinton is George Clinton, was doing the rounds a few years ago. How about this? The only good Nixon is Garland Nixon. How wonderful and absolutely true. Let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Doug is on the line in California on Palestine. Go ahead, Doug. Hey, thank you, uh, Mr. Uh, GG. That's what everybody in the chat's calling you, GG. Okay, but I want to talk fine. about uh, uh, the UN asylum law and how it applies to the Palestinians in Gaza and their claims for asylum in Egypt and what about the French hospital ship that's dealing with the Palestinians in Gaza couldn't the Palestinians claim asylum 
on that flagship of France. But why should they leave their uh, country? They've, they're already refugees in their country by being in Gaza. In the first place, why should they leave Gaza? Why isn't the world coming to their rescue? No, the question is, why can't they ask for asylum either on that French hospital ship or in Egypt itself? Because they don't want to go to Egypt. They want to stay in Palestine. The, but they're, they're at war. They're, they're, going, they're heading for the Egyptian border. They're getting, you're calling it genocide. Well, but, but, so uh, if it's really genocide, then yeah, Egypt should take see, their own it. brothers see, and sisters. Doug, Doug. Well, they're, they're not their brothers and sisters. The Palestinians are not Egyptians, and the Egyptians are not Palestinians. And you are what I call a concerned troll. You pretend that you are concerned about the plight of the Palestinians, and you urge them to seek political asylum in France on a ship. What, are they going to swim out to it? Even if they were of a mind to ask France to take them away from their own country, or General Sisi to take them away from their own country. Uh, this is uh, a despicable idea. The Palestinians are Palestinian, it's their land, it has been taken from them, and if they were to go to Egypt or swim out to a French ship, they would never be allowed back to their country again just like millions of other Palestinians are not allowed back to their country again. Be gone with you, Doug, in California. Ali is in London on Palestine. Go ahead, Ali. Hi, George. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, and uh, greetings to everyone who's listening. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you for, for all that you've done. Uh, and continue to do. Um, I wish you all the very best in um, in Rochdale. Um, Thank you, George. Uh, obviously, what's happening in in Palestine and specifically Gaza is is just uh, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it, listening to your it's off the um, charts, isn't it? It's off it's off the charts, Ali. It's literally off yeah. the charts. We've never seen it, anything like this before it, it exactly it's um it, it, i mean dystopian to describe as describe it as dystopian is is just an understatement it's like um yeah. it's like some kind of Nightmare. stephen king horror movie or something yeah yeah, yeah um yeah, yeah. and you know listening to um that very brave very courageous doctor you had earlier uh, I think his name's Yasser Khan. Mm -hmm. um, just yeah. yeah, it kind of kind of broke me a little bit, um, as as it did. I'm I'm sure to yourself as well. But um, George, I, I I wanted to ask you. Um, I know it's a very vague and arbitrary question, but where do you see this going? Because um, you know there are I don't know something like one and a half million people stuffed into. Rafa, um, and you've got Rafa. the Egyptians. Yeah. Ali, you're in um, London. Yeah. Ali, you're in you're in London. Do you know that Rafa is the size of Heathrow Airport, and 1.6 million people are are lying mm. on the ground. If they're lucky, yeah. under a sheet. If they're unlucky, uh, on the cold ground with no cover at all. Rafa is the yeah. size of Heathrow Airport and has become now the epicenter of a genocide. It's amazing, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, uh, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't know where this is going um, because you've got all of these people there. You've got, I, I think I read somewhere 650,000 children there. Um, Mm -hmm. And you've got uh, the Egyptians on the other side um, saying basically not, you know, that, that they can't come in, in in the best possible way. You know, like I can see where the Egyptians are coming from, but these people are unbelievably desperate. So 
where do you where do you see personally it going? You know, I don't know. Uh, I expected that the ICJ judgment would put more pressure on Western governments than it evidently has. Uh, so uh, they seem completely unmoved. Indeed, several of them, including our own, have simply rejected the decision of the highest court in the whole world. Uh, they have simply rejected it. And in the case of Keir Starmer, haven't even referred to it. Uh, so ignored it. Never mind rejected it. Just completely ignored it as if it had never happened. Uh, so where it's going will be determined by how much damage uh, this carnage is doing on uh, Western governments amongst their own public. I think the damage is considerable. I think the damage on Sunak and on particularly on Starmer is considerable. I think the damage on Biden is terminal, fatal. I think it will destroy the presidency of Joe Biden and indeed any possibility of he or his understudy, Kamala Harris, uh, being elected president in November. Uh, because on the principle that a surgeon cannot operate on, its own, on his own foot, cannot amputate his own foot, this will have to be resolved from outside. The world governments, Russia, China, America, Britain, France, etc., will have to impose a political settlement. Uh, with all the sanctions that will be required upon Israel to enforce that imposed uh, ending. Whether there'll be any Palestinians left in Gaza uh, remains to be seen. I worked on the assumption that the world would not surely stand by and see uh, 2.3 million people annihilated, literally wiped off the face of the earth. I'm no longer sure that that was true, that hope, belief was true. But as long as one Palestinian remains alive, uh, their cause will never die. It is age-old and evergreen, and it is joined daily uh, by new Palestinians being born everywhere uh, around the world, including in Palestine itself. Ali, thank you for the call from London. Idris is in nearby Bolton on Palestine. Go ahead, Idris. Hi, George. Uh, thanks for having me again. I actually, I actually rang Welcome. you uh, during the temporary ceasefire. And I actually asked you effectively the same question as the previous caller. Where do you think this is going? And I think you said to me that the likelihood is that the ceasefire would be extended. I, th I think, uh, forgive me, but I think even you underestimated the depravity of the Israeli government because it clearly didn't, uh, it, it, the ceasefire clearly wasn't extended, right? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and answer You're the right. previous caller's question, right? This was never about Hamas. This was never about even the hostages. This was always about the annihilation of the Palestinians, right? The fact that they've bombed schools, universities, essentially what the, the, the doctor that was on that said before, he effectively said that it's not about just taking out the hospital, it's about taking out the infrastructure. So it makes Gaza completely uninhabitable, right? So for me, this was always intended to be the removal of all of the Palestinians, and they've managed to do that. They're all now piled up in the south, right? And I think their intention now is to drive them into the Sinai. And unfortunately, I believe the governments in the West are completely complicit. They know what's going on. It's the same situation as Iraq. They, they knew Saddam didn't have weapons of mass destruction, and this is exactly the same, right? Now, I agree, I completely agree with what you just said earlier, it depends on what they can get away with. Now, the public opinion is such that it may be that these governments that are in power, the public opinion is such that they've got to now back some sort of ceasefire like Keir Starmer just had. 
just has uh, in order to avoid uh, the public going against him, that might well happen. But I think to answer the previous caller's question, the goal is very, very simple. It's greater Israel. Israel is for the Jews. And until the Palestinians are eliminated, they're not going to stop. And once Gaza has been done with, they're going to go to the West Bank. So forgive me, forgive me, George. uh, I I don't, yeah, last time because I'm past time. Go ahead, finish up, finish up. Uh, What what I just said at the end was, it's not necessarily a question. It's a summation for me. And I'd like your opinion on this. Uh, Well, of course, I agree with every word of it. Uh, It is my view, oft expressed over 50 years. uh, And so you won't find any argument with me. And that was a very powerful uh, call to finish what I think has been an outstanding show, Uh, even by the standards of the mother of all talk shows. I think it has been an outstanding show. People often say, what can they do? Well, one of the things you can do is make sure that this show continues. Uh, Maybe even bring this show uh, out three times a week instead of twice a week. Uh, Maybe bring us some more viewers. Maybe ensure that everyone that you know knows how to find us, when to find us, where to find us. You can donate at moats.tv forward slash donate. You can support me on Patreon. But if you don't have the money to do that, at least bring more viewers so that the audience of this show continues to multiply. That's all for me. Indeed, more than all from me. I'm two minutes over the hour. Forgive me to my colleagues who make this show a possibility. I'm live in Rochdale. I hope to continue broadcasting from here. And I hope that you and others that you know will join me. Good night.